Welcome to The Concierge CPA. I'm Jackie Meyer, founder of The Concierge Accountant Program and Tax Ben IQ Software. This is a podcast for accounting firm owners and influencers who are pursuing world-class service. We discuss their path to excellence, their habits, and what influences them and their work. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. Stick around till the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go, y'all. Welcome to the Concierge CPA Podcast. I have two very special guests today. I have Randy Johnston, who has been a mentor to me in recent years and always well-respected. And then Brian Tankersley, who I have not heard before, but I am very excited to interview and learn more about you. Do you want to correct your last name? Did I really butcher it? Or is it okay, Brian? It's just Tankersley. You can call me anything but late for dinner. Fair enough. I'd love for y'all to just give a little bit about each of your background and then how you know each other and work together and whatnot. Super. My name is Brian Tankersley. I am a recovering auditor, like many of you. I started out as an auditor with one of the big firms now 31 years ago and spent some time in industry and public accounting. I was the technology editor for the CPA practice advisor from 2010 to 2014 and published a couple of hundred product reviews on that. And I've worked with Randy at Key2 since 2005. I've spoken face-to-face in 48 U.S. states. I'm still acting in Vermont and Delaware. If anybody knows anybody that can get a gig in either of those two states, uh, I'm ready to pay bribes. Those two yellow sticky notes have been on that paper checklist now for about seven years. That's a little bit of me. Randy, I know each other because I actually attended a K2 Tech conference way back in 1999. And he and I had stayed in touch. And I started pursuing K2 about 2003. About 2005, I started working with them. And about 2006, I had more work than I knew what to do with it. So I guess tell our listeners a little bit about K2 if they're not familiar. I'll take that one, Jackie, and I'm Randy Johnston, so I'm one of the K2 partners. K2 produces roughly 2,000 events a year to about 100,000 CPAs in the U.S. and Canada, and we have done that since the 80s. Typically, we have produced multi-day conferences, all-day events, and during the pandemic, we did a lot more virtual and still do webinars as an outcome of that. But we have also consulted for a variety of technology vendors as they've evolved their products through the years. And that gives us insights on what's happening. But our attendees tend to be about 40% in public practice and about 60% in industry. So we've had the good fortune of having most of the CFOs, the Fortune 500 in our courses. And in fact, we have been producing an event really as we're recording this for a well-known corporate entity where we've got about 250 people in attendance. We do in-house as well. I was able to record my ROI method of tax advisory services with your group, which was awesome. And I know that y'all love AI and you talk a lot about AI. Randy, you were a panelist on the webinar series I did that we actually converted into the Concierge CPA podcast series. Randy, tell us a little bit more about your background. Happy to do that. I've built many systems that are still in use today and have consulted for most of the technology vendors whose names you would recognize 
except Salesforce, Facebook, and Google. Never did those three companies. But all of the hardware companies, so Apple, Dell, HP, IBM, Lenovo, Microsoft with the evolution of Windows and Office and Intuit and Sage and NetSuite and SAP and Oracle, so right up the accounting chain. Traditionally, I've just done things that I've found to be interesting in the area of technology that I believe relate to accountants. And that's been a great life for me. Yes, AI is one of those kind of top of mind topics right now, but so is quantum computing, which is just about to come of age too. Whenever there's something that's new, I try to understand it, explain it in a way that most professionals can figure out how they can use it in their own professional lives or in their companies or in their firms. And then we come for the next new technology whenever it comes along. You can't leave us hanging on that. So quantum technology, how is that going to help accountants? Well, quantum will help not only accountants in public practice, but I believe in all forms of businesses. Just to give you an example, the quantum computing capabilities will improve what I believe to be predictive analytic. Just know that quantum computers can do those much more rapidly. And the modeling in all sorts of areas, healthcare, weather forecasting, transportation, and so on. So I think when it comes to accountants' applications of quantum computing, I don't want to sound over the top on this. I think quantum may wind up being as big, if not bigger, than AI. And if we think about artificial intelligence getting leveraged on quantum computer, all of a sudden we can handle these very large models. Most of the common quantum computing platforms today are relatively small, Jackie. Intel's got a 15-qubit unit and Google's got a 72-qubit unit and so forth, and IBM has 150 qubits. We figure it'll take about 500 qubits to actually get a commercially viable unit, and we're going to get there fairly soon. When that happens, though, the amount of compute power will be far beyond anything we can imagine today. The smallest of the quantum computers can outperform the biggest of the computers available today. So, you know, Brian's from the Knoxville area, and the largest supercomputer in the world is just down the road from him. And the smallest of the quantum computers will be faster than those and be able to handle far more data. So I'm doing this doctorate in leadership, and I'm taking a data analysis class right now. We're talking all about big data and the fact that it feels like computers are really behind when it comes to knowing what to analyze and accurate analyzing. And so you're saying this is probably what's going to catch technology up to what we expect. As a matter of fact, our mutual friend between Brian and I, Duck's leader, has named it big bad data because so much of big data is actually bad. And by the way, when you try to add to the data sense, you corrupt them. So that's a reason that he calls it big bad data. But processing big data, you can do at scale on quantum computing. So if we start taking this out to Internet of Things and measuring all sorts of devices, let's face it, all of our cell phones are an Internet of Things thing, the quantum computing has enough capacity to process all that data as it's coming in. So these big data sets all of a sudden are not that big. So we'll be able to actually process this big data in ways that our current scalar or vector computers can't. Is there anything publicly accessible for people to toy around with in this realm yet? 
Yes, as a matter of fact, IBM is already published and is publishing a quantum computer that you can have. You can run your own algorithms on that quantum platform today. One of the concerns we've got is the coming Y2Q, just like Y2K, Y2Q, that's when all security will be broken by quantum computing. So everything that's SSL and all of that encryption on the disk, that's all able to be broken by an algorithm known as Shor's algorithm today. And it's projected that Shor's algorithm will be broken as early as 2027. I think it might be sooner than that, Jackie. And it's part of the reason why the U.S. government has approved further review for new encryption algorithms. The bottom line here from an accounting perspective, there's quantum hacking occurring right now where bad actors are accumulating data and then are beginning to perfect their methodology of breaking into these large data sets. So what should accountants do to protect themselves and their firm and their clients? The short-term piece on this, Jackie, is to keep everything patched. And when new encryption methodologies are available, to deploy those. One of the things that is uh, happening is Microsoft is uh, getting ready to discontinue support for their multi-factor authentication methodologies in September of 2024. We'll have new methodologies of securing devices, so that'll be a natural progression towards what we can do. Think patch and keep your systems up to date. Bad actors are figuring out how to use AI to write new attacks that are bespoke, one of a kind. And these attacks are very much stepped up here in the summer of 2023. The volumes are up very radically. And we're actually going to have to use more AI systems to defend our systems in the short term against these new AI-based attacks. Have you seen this happening with accounting firms? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, multiple firms have been this year. And most of the really aggressive stuff happened post the release of ChatGPT3 in November of 22. And it didn't take the bad actors very long to figure out that they could use this new AI tool, not only for things like marketing or spoofing, but also for writing this bad code. Our rule of thumb here has been, you can always use all technology for good or bad. And this just happens to be an application of the technology for bad. So what should accountants do to protect themselves and their firm and their clients? As a matter of fact, cyber insurance, we also suspect, will no longer be available as the underwriters start looking at their risks. So right now, we've been suggesting to firms that you want to get your security as tight as you can, because if the underwriters, like Lloyd's of London, back out of it as they've made overtones that they're going to do in 2025, all of a sudden, our firms will probably have to do their own cyber insurance. They'll have to be self-underwriting. And so that might lead to a tax strategy, which is captive insurance. So maybe that's the way to go. Who knows? So Brian, are you on this? Tell us what your thoughts are on AI and technology and security. I agree with Randy about the attacks. I'm seeing that volume of attacks come through here. I'm very concerned about the privacy angle of ChatGPT. Because when it came out, it seemed like everybody got all excited and they said, oh, there's something new and shiny. And they chased the shiny. 
And they didn't think about the fact that if you feed data into there, then that data is now part of the model and ChatGPT now has it in its corpus of, of information. And so the thing that really gets me concerned is that in this world where we're using AI now and we're contributing to these AI models, at what point is us using these tools leaking confidential client information out to other people? I think we have to have a conversation because we all know there are companies in Silicon Valley, Facebook and, and Twitter and others that have a, a business model that involves selling ads and tracking and creating as finely calibrated of the profile about you and, and your business and, and everything about you as they can. And the thing we've got to be careful about is that the tools we use as accountants don't contribute to that, that we're not backdoor sharing that information in ways that are supposedly anonymized, but they can be de-anonymized by smart actors like Peter Thiel's company, uh, Palantir, and, and others that are in the data business. So I think there's a lot of exciting stuff coming with AI. I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the world of security. But the bad guys, as I've said before, the bad guys seem to be getting better at a rate faster than the good guys. So the good guys really have to hustle. Okay, so let's dive a little bit more into the AI side of things. Can one of y'all just define, take a step back for our listeners, if they're new to all the AI stuff, there's a lot of different types of AI and natural language processing is what's big and exciting right now. What are the main types that you're seeing coming of age now and what's so exciting about them? Yeah, no, I'm going to actually put Brian on the spot today on this one, Jackie. He's heard me explain this before, but I actually want your listeners to get his accountant view of it. Now, I'll set it up just a little bit for him so he's got a little more time to put his thoughts together. But fundamentally, what's happened is artificial intelligence has evolved over a 70-year period. This is not new. This started in the 1950s. And we had language processing as early as 1963. And we had vision processing in the 70s. And I wrote artificial intelligence code on Lisp in 1976. So that's a long ways back. Now, what was happening is these artificial intelligence algorithms, these sets of instructions acting like a human, kept getting more and more sophisticated. There were only about 25 to 50 models as recently as 2010. And along about 2010, the big breakthroughs happened with the neural networks and the playing of the AlphaGo game. And you saw some of this publicly with Siri and Watson and others. But what I'd like your listeners to be thinking about is there's a branch of artificial intelligence that's trying to be general AI. And I think we're decades away from general AI, by the way. And then there's other branches of AI that can be very focused. And that's where things like big data and predictive analytics work. So for accountants, I think we need both types of AI. We need predictive and we need the general or generative stuff that we've got today. Now, I've Brian and I know there's lots of things that you can use to describe, but how would you have our accountant friends understand AI, its usage, some of the models? Because you know me well enough. I can go off on the large language models and the tokens and all the technical stuff. And I know Jackie's listeners don't want to hear that. 
even though I've been around you and I've studied up on this stuff and I've read about it, at some point I hear Charlie Brown's parents talking, people talk about AI, because there is a lot to it. I would suggest to them is that there are tools now to solve problems that humans used to solve through. So for example, the OCR, optical character recognition, that was a technology a few years back and they've applied AI to it and neural networks and so forth. And now it is infinitely more accurate than it was just 10 years. There is no comparison in what I get from an OCR today from what I had 10 years ago. I remember when we first had Siri and we had the Alexa devices, it was hit or miss and usually miss. I can see her using a chat tool. I typically use otter.ai and otter will go through and summarize meetings that were recorded and transcribe it. I actually use it to transcribe Randy's in my podcast that we do for the CPA practice advisor. It's called the technology lab. The URL for it is cpapractices.com slash podcast. The new episode comes every Friday, 20 minutes or so. Sorry, Jackie. Once I start down that road, I have to finish the elevator pitch. But those are two major issues that have gotten significantly better. The BI tools and the predictive stuff is getting there. It's not a solved problem in my mind as of yet. It's on the precipice, I think, and it will be there soon. But the predictive stuff is just not quite ready for prime time. If I were to think about the models and the other things, there are some things in accounting that I'm surprised that we haven't seen solved already. If you're on a lawn service and you have a ticket from Exxon, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that it probably is to fuel or automobile expense or, again, equipment fuel. You know, I'm surprised that more of that has happened. But I'm also pleasantly surprised with tools like the expense reporting tools like Zoho Expense. I mean, I take a picture of receipts with Zoho Expense whenever I'm on the road, and it gets the dollar amount right every single time if it's printed out. Now, if it's a handwritten receipt with a pink pen on that thermal paper, I don't know what we're going to come up with, but it gets everything right all the time. We are in the process of switching in the accounting profession from being a profession of doers to a profession of plumbers. So we're switching from being people that actually key data in and get data entered to people that have systems and they troubleshoot the systems when they go wrong. Think about your office and your entire accounting department. It's really just a great big data processing machine. You're like the person in coveralls looking around the whole thing, wondering where the data is going to leak out, where it's going to get backed up, where it's not going to work right. And then you have to jump in real quick and fix those problems. I think jobs in accounting are not going away, but they are changing. We are now managing systems. I would say a couple of things about that. One, your analogy with a plumber is funny and ironic because accountants complain plumbers are making more per hour these days than they are as accountants. But two, I think a major problem with where we're at today is that I don't see college degrees catching up that quickly to the things that accountants really need to be learning around analytics and AI and that kind of thing. Have you heard much about great college programs that are really killing it with this stuff? Actually, my first teaching gig was teaching CPA review way back in 1997. And I still have some recorded lectures out there on Yeager. But I will tell you that 
the academic world does move more slowly than the professional world. However, there's a lot of excitement around analytics. I think part of the talent problem we have is that a lot of our best and brightest are getting siphoned off by the analytics people and the statistics because they're looking at this lifestyle they can have and they can work 40 to 50 hours a week in analytics and make more money. And that's something where I think, honestly, the accounting firms have got to figure out that model because the days of having these huge numbers of candidates coming through are over. Blake actually got him right in the podcast a while back where he said, all accounts ever do is complain about their jobs. It's very difficult for people to get excited about things when they look over here and they say, wow, this is cool. It's amazing. We're changing the world. And God, I work all the time. It's hard to get excited. Jackie, there are schools that have come quite far in their analytics capability. Part of the trick here has been defining what the predictive analytics should look like or what business intelligence should look like. And we've gone from a world of high-end tools, which are still in use, like Cognos and SaaS and, you know, more that I could name, to self-serve tools like Power BI or Click or Domo or Tableau. And again, I've just named off Acting Avalanche. That's eight or 10 that I've named right there. And the problem from a school perspective, how do you teach the principles behind getting to the root of the data and how do you teach the reporting? And there are actually multiple skills that are needed here. You need some database skills. You need some analytical skills. You need some graphical skills. And you got to wrap those all in one. And I think Brian is right that the talent is absolutely there and the schools are teaching it. But the students, instead of winding up in accounting degrees, are winding up in data science degrees. And they're entering the market at $150,000 in a bad day and a quarter of a million in a better day. And they've actually got a, a whole different way of looking at things. So we will see tools, not unlike yours, frankly that are going to get augmented with AI to help novices build the models a little more readily, to do predictive work a little more readily. But it takes a while for the programmers to get it because the programmers are running these algorithms that we're talking about, but they don't understand finance very well. So what happens is they don't actually understand what they're trying to generate. They mechanically know what they want to create, but they don't have this internal thing where you see a number and say, that that number's not right. That's what's going to make us stand out as humans. So that's always a good thing, right? That's what we need, no matter what industry or profession that we're in. We need someone that's going to question things and push the envelope because we know ChatGPT aims to please, so to speak, in a way, right? With agreeing to a lot of things that maybe aren't even true. You want to get into that area a little bit? As you're thinking about that pleasing thing, one thing that we know is true, and this is really Brian's phrase, so I'm stealing from you, Brian, the difference in the future of accountants that don't use AI and accountants that do is going to be pretty stunning. And you're going to have to apply that professional review. That's the reason I brought up that phrase, because if you use AI tools, you're no longer working with a blank piece of paper. But you got to recognize that the tools are going to try to please. They're going to hallucinate, make stuff up if they don't have a good answer. And you have to be able to call the shot and say, that isn't right. But further, 
it will take a little bit of work on the accountant side to learn how to write prompts better. And in fact, the whole prompt engineering thing in AI is fascinating. And we've noticed they're now trying to allow you to do a little pre-prompting in the last releases. That's probably still not enough. So you have to be very careful about how you prompt the engine and filter the hallucinations, number one. And number two, as Brian pointed out earlier, you have to be very careful what type of information you put out there because of the privacy concerns. So those are the two big downsides as we see it. That's where I think, Jackie, in your text plan IQ AI model, where you've made it private, that stuff isn't leaking out. And the problem is on all of these public AI engines, they can leak out. And even in Microsoft's Copilot 365, the new AI engine there, that's $30 per user per month, there's evidence that Microsoft is having trouble keeping the data leaking out from one organization to another. That isn't a good day. Okay, just think that you've got a client that's given you client confidential information and it gets into the wild and they know the only place they gave it was you. How do you explain that? Oh, I was using ChatGPT or I was using Microsoft Copilot 365 and their control procedures and governance wasn't good enough. That's not going to hold any water, right? You spurred me to the same topic, different thing that I'd have to get y'all's opinion on. So I have compared GPT 3.5 to a college-age student-level education, and then GPT-4 is more like the smartest scholar in the world. What is the difference between those two models that is so stark? But also, GPT-4 is actually getting dumber the more I interact with it, and I want to know why. Do y'all know? Is it because people are putting bad data into it? That's part of it. But I think if you'll let me use the word savant first, I think that will help set the stage a little better. But the fact of the matter is the 3.5 model was much simpler than the 4.0 model. Now, again, at the risk of talking too much technical stuff here, when we put words inside these systems, they are actually tokenized. They're turned into numbers because The large language models that are used here are simply nothing more than a game in statistics, Jackie. ChatGPT3's library only had details on 50,257 tokens. Now, I would really like to know how many are in GPT4, but it's a lot more because GPT3 handles and supports 175 billion parameters but GPT-4 does 100 trillion. All right, we're talking huge differences, 175 billion versus 100 trillion and 50,000 tokens versus 100 trillion. That's that's magnificent amount of background difference. And GPT-3 can only handle a couple of thousand tokens at a time, 2048, whereas GPT-4 can handle 32,000 tokens at a time. So 2048 can handle about the length of an article, whereas 32,000 can handle a short book. Now, why is it getting dumber? It's because you're feeding it information and it is adding to that to your model and then it's looping back that information. So it gives you something false and you don't provide the, it's called human reinforcement learning feedback, HRLF. 
If you don't click the up thumb or the down thumb on a bad GPT response, you're going to get more and more bad responses because the model is looking for you to give it feedback. And if you don't give it feedback, it assumes everything's good. You're thinking of a school student versus university. Yeah, there's a much bigger dictionary in there for sure. And clearly GPT-3.5 is faster. But in many situations, a 3.5 model is sufficient to do all of the processing that you need and can do it at a much faster rate. So anyway, but the dumbness is probably your human reinforcement learning feedback mechanisms. The analogy I would give to it there is I think 3.5, I like your college student analogy and I'll go a step further. I think 3.5 smokes a lot of pot, you know, live your life, be happy, do what you want to do. But 3.5 is very urban age, okay? I think 4, it reminds me very much of a used car salesperson. And most of us have had that friend that was a salesperson that maybe they cut corners and sometimes they would shade the truth a little bit and put a little extra spin on things. And they would wait for you to respond. They would watch your nonverbals to know when they should stop and they've gone too far. And and I think GPT-4 is very much like that salesperson brand. Where if you, like what Randy says, if you don't give them the feedback, they're just going to keep making stuff up. Randy and I were in a meeting in New York with a bunch of other folks for CPA practice advisors talking about issues for the profession. We had Becky Livingston give us a presentation on chat GPT. And just for kicks and giggles, Randy and I and a bunch of other people ran bios on ourselves and on other people. And we ran a bio on our friend again, Dub Slater, and chat GPT told us that was dead. He told me I had been on the faculties of University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Let's see, it said Lambeth University. No, not Lambeth. It was two universities in Nashville, okay? And it was amazing to me that of those four universities, I had been on the faculty of exactly zero. Um, so this hallucination thing is real, and it just kicks in sometimes, and you have to really watch it. If you remember the Saturday Night Live character, The Liar, the, yeah, that's the ticket. If you remember that character from the 90s, I think almost GPT 3.5 and 4 sometimes can do that level of hallucination where you're just going along, and then suddenly it runs out of stuff to say, so it just starts making things up. It's amazing. Yeah, so I think smoking dope is probably right there, Brian. Some of the GPT-4 stuff is certainly doing that. But Jackie, at the risk of being a little technical again, we had mentioned earlier the neural networks. And the neural networks of 2010, a common one at that time was AlexNet. It was trained on 1.2 million labeled images. What they did was they, you might remember the videos, the cats and all the stuff that Google was doing at the time. They were paying people around the world to train these images. And by the way, they're paying people in India right now to train on languages. So that's a very common business practice. The whole neural network database was 126 gig big. And we believe that's probably less than a tenth of the size of GPT-4's data set. And if we go back to GPT-3, which was created by the open crawl, the common crawl between 2016 and 2019, it got 45 terabytes of data, most of it, by the way, which was U.S. English language biased, about 85% of it. And that 
data was reduced to only 570 gig of quality text. All right, so GPT-3, 570 gig, AlexNet, 126 gig, GPT-4, the numbers are not real clear from the public domain, but probably 1,200 gigabyte of data. When you think about errors, how much stuff do you find on the web that's got an error in it? How many newscasts do you hear that have non-factual information and so forth? And what's happened here is there's no rails on this stuff. So it's going out and gathering everything up. And gosh, I would expect it to make some mistakes. I expect to get some stuff right too. But it has very little contextual processing. And that's why I like people like you who have gone to the work of getting advanced degrees. Brian and I both know Dr. Michael Bertini, who used to be the president of Open Systems. He went back to school just to get himself to be more of a critical thinker. See, I don't believe that education's about necessarily getting a better job, but it's about getting a better life. And it's about understanding yourself and the things that you're interested in in greater depth. And I am so pleased through the years to have met so many brilliant accountants that can see through things so quickly. But if they just had the right information in many cases, they'd make even better decisions. And that's what I think all this analytics and quantum computing and all these things that we're talking about, AI, that's what this is about. It's just trying to put the right data, the right information in the hands of knowledgeable professionals to make better decisions. For sure. And it's super, super exciting. It reminds me when you talk about bad search data in like third grade, I wrote this amazing paper that I found all this info on Google search about how chihuahuas were from the desert in Mexico and they lived in caves. And I did this whole paper. I was so proud of it. I submit it and they're like, that if that was true. That's exactly what we're dealing with now. It literally could fool you in a second, although I guess I'm easy to fool. Another thing with the bot stuff is if GPT-4 tells me one more time to go check out Brene Brown, oh my goodness, it's like the only female author that GPT-4 has any knowledge over, and it needs a much wider span of diversity, I would say, in those areas. Yeah, but you can't blame it for limiting its scope because Sarah Silverman has actually sued OpenAI Foundation saying that it was trained on her book without her consent. And that represents a piracy of her copyright. If you're limited in scope, it could be the folks running scared from the intellectual property issues that all are yet to be worked out in the courts. Yeah. And in fact, to that point, Jackie, the Toronto Declaration back in 2018 clearly laid out some of these AI issues. And it also laid out the AI biases. And just for the record of your listeners, I have taken a lot of the employment exams that are out there. And almost, in fact, the last number I knew, and I know this number is not accurate today, but approximately 20 million applications are filtered by these processing systems every year here in the United States. And there's about five different systems that do that. And all of the Fortune 500, but four to my knowledge, were running them the last time I checked. And for the record, 
according to these exams, I'm unable to hold an IT job. I don't have the skills. Now, I'm not sure that's biased, but maybe it is. I never worked well for other people. I was better off being an entrepreneur. Maybe that's what it's indicating about you. Well, I think part of it might be I've done the same thing for, as you asked earlier, 60 years-ish. And I love what I do. And I've been doing it in the field of accounting and technology for 40 plus years. I think it's probably because I don't have enough diversity, right? I'm just all about accounting and all about technology. And then people realize that I have this really weird reading habit where I read things all over the map. And I really do think conversations with individuals, diversity of thinking, diversity of reading really does help you because that background, it just expands your mind. So back to your degree that you're working on or Dr. Bertini's degree, I could see he was sharp beforehand, but he was really sharp after he got his degree. Now, how did that happen? And so again, it's not about getting the job. It's just about making yourself a better person. For sure. And I think the reading requirements is like one book a week. The writing requirements is at least 6,000 words a week. And if you're not absorbing more information, more knowledge that way, I don't know who is. But yeah. So speaking of books, I like to ask guests what your favorite book is that you would recommend to our viewers. So can each of you give me one favorite that you want to throw out there? Interesting deal because I actually very intentionally, Jackie, probably starting in the pandemic period, decided I was just going to go back to some of my reading habits. So I now consume no less than a, a book a week or maybe two, but not much longer than that. So this year alone, I've probably put through 25 or something like that. I went back to an old one, which is what I'm working on right now, Grit, which I thought would be interesting just to see what was said in that book. But the most readable book on quantum supremacy so far is Michio Kaku's book. It's How Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything. And I think he has beautifully summarized many of the opportunities and many of the issues around quantum computing in an English accountant reading capable form. Okay. And once you get done with that book, you realize, oh my, or let's be more accurate with George Takei, oh my, things are really going to change. And in the big picture, I can't even wrap my head around how many things will change. And I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. AI is important. A quantum could be bigger. And I think that's a really nifty read right now for something that's very forward-facing. Now, if you said, okay, it's got to be an accounting, I've got different filters I can apply, but that's the one that I'd pick right now. No, I'm fine going outside of accounting. I'm totally fine with that. Brian, what about you? I have to go back to Simon Sinek's Start with Why. It's such a great book about figuring out who you are and who you are. And I just really think it's a wonderful book. There's a book I read recently about privacy, and I can't place it right now. When we talk about privacy in this age, I think we've got to be very careful that we don't subordinate privacy to our own productivity. 
I think there are a lot of Faustian bargains to come from tech companies and from uh, kinds of services out there that will say that if you give up your client's private data, they will be glad to go in and prepare the tax return with AI. And I think we've got to be very careful about it. I, I think as a country and as a government, I think we have woefully underregulated and undervalued privacy, uh, trying to stoke uh, the economy of Silicon Valley. And I think now they have earned trillions and trillions of dollars. And now we are sitting here at this point where we've given up all this private information and we're just now learning what we may have lost as a result. So, Brian, I can't say for sure if similar topics were covered in uh, Dignity in a Digital Age, which was an interesting read in that area. As I think about these different topics, I'm not going to renege on my quantum book, Jackie, but I think the one that has had the most impact on me in the last six to nine months, I think it's been nine months now, is Why We Sleep, a very straightforward book written by Matthew Walker, but explains the science of what happens when we are sleeping and how our bodies recover and how we get memories locked in. And a lot of that physiological things I've followed for a long time. But that was one that was, wish I'd have read this when I was younger, because I have a habit and have had a habit of probably sleeping less than is healthy. I've really gotten used to it and it's kind of tradition in my family, but I think a lot of your listeners would benefit from Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. I found the book. It is Data Cartels, the Companies that Control and Monopolize Our Information by Sarah Lampdan. I actually read this one late last year, and it was very interesting. You hear a lot about data being the new oil, but we are giving away so much of this data now that I think we really have to think about what we're really doing and if we're really getting the value that we should be getting from giving up that much privacy. Okay, very nice. I'm going to check that out for sure. And the sleep book, I think, is really interesting. Fun fact about me, I have a sleep disorder. I have hypersomnia, so I have to sleep a lot more than normal people. <laughs> um, and it's quite disruptive, but hopefully if listeners have any kind of sleep problems out there, they're getting them addressed because there are a lot of cool new technologies and medications that are helping with that. Oh, I wish I could talk to you all about a billion more things, but I cannot because we have to end this sometime. Um, I'm going to try to put some tags in the notes on the books that you reference and whatnot. I'm thinking GPT-4 might have a sleep disorder now that I'm thinking about it because it's been forgetting, you know, it would remember the entire chat history in that one chat and now it's not. And it's driving insane because I rely on it to remember all these things that I can't remember. So if anyone listening knows why... Reach out to me, let me know so that I can get it fixed, especially in our own GPT model, the tax manager in Jane uh, with Tax One IQ. So on that note, I want to end with any final thoughts that you might have. I know there's probably, again, a billion more things that you could share with our audience, but any closing remarks? Randy, you want to start? I'll start, and we'll keep this one focused on AI. I believe that the age is coming very quickly where as accountants we'll be able to produce better quality work with less effort but we're going to have to keep our wits about us and in the meantime we are going to have to spend some time learning the tools now 
if you think I'm right, there are a lot of charlatans selling a lot of snake oil in this area, but there's also a whole lot of new things to be learned. And I'm going to caution you, if it sounds wrong to you, it probably is. Okay, so keep your wits about you. But I think you've got to spend the effort to get good at it. And as you do, you'll be more and more amazed, probably like the three of us on this podcast. We're all amazed at how good it works, but we are also cautious of the things that it doesn't do well. Brian? What I would say is that I think AI is changing too rapidly and it's too dynamic right now for you to have a fixed strategy that you think you're going to be able to follow. I think it's changing too much and product offerings are coming out too quick. I think you do need to get some understanding of prompt engineering, like Randy said. I think you try some stuff with some of the tools. And by the way, not just the text tools like ChatGPT, but I think you also need to try some things out with Dally. If for no other reason than I had Dally create a Van Gogh style painting of a white multi-poo that looks like my dog Theo. And my wife liked it so much. She had it printed on canvas um, and hangs it in her office. And so I think you'll learn all kinds of things that you didn't imagine. But this whole concept of this prompting, I think is really analogous to a pedagogy that you have a lot of times where you have to learn this, then you have to learn this, then you have to learn this and slowly climb at the end, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. I think you have to really watch and try this out to try to get it in here. Because if you think about the way salespeople will ask questions, the questions they ask pull you in a certain direction for thinking. You have to think of the prompt generation in the same way, because that's how you get what you want. And, and I know that what you want from a tax perspective is going to be different from what I would want from a from an accounting technology perspective, which would be different from what an auditor would want. There's a lot of exciting stuff. It's changing rapidly. Hang on, watch the privacy, and again, just experiment a little bit. Okay, This is something that's not going to be settled for a while. So try some things out, see how it works, and fail fast, fail off, and get better. Yeah, for sure. I've been using an app called, I don't even know if it's pronounced right, AI, and I uploaded my own video, like form video. It converted me into AI. It's got my full audio. So I've completely replaced myself on video, which is pretty fun because I hate being on video. I've yet to master the graphic design aspect of AI, though. It always comes up the weirdest, craziest looking stuff with 10 fingers and like, crazy eyes and, and when it comes to humans. But yeah, I'll have to also check out some of your suggestions today. I want to thank you both for being here. I really appreciate all of your knowledge. Well, I see y'all at the AISCK Executive Roundtable next month. You will. Perfect. Awesome. All right. I will probably come pick your brain quite a bit uh, there as well. And um, thanks again for your time today. Take care. Thanks, Jack. for listening to the Concierge CPA hosted by Tax Plan IQ. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. If you are a successful accounting firm owner or influencer who would like to be on this program, please visit JackieMeyerCPA.com 
J-A-C-K-I-E-M-E-Y-E-R-C-P-A.com to apply. Please share this on social media and rate us so we can continue our good work. Join our Facebook group called Accounting Firm Influencers or connect with me on most platforms under Jackie Meyer CPA. Thanks for being accountable to transforming our industry today.